I want to say a happy Father's Day to all the dads in our congregation. Every Father's Day, I'm reminded of one of my many failures as a pastor. This one, one of the more public ones. So probably about 15 years ago, I got up Sunday morning to do the welcome. And during the welcome, I wished all the dads a happy Father's Day. As I continued in the welcome, I noticed people kind of turning to one another with these puzzled looks back and forth. When I came down from the stage, someone informed me, today's not Father's Day. Next week is. And the reason I was confused is that typically in the cook home, we buy Father's Day cards just before Father's Day so that we can mail them and they're late. Well, this year, the week before, there were already cards in the house. So I thought, well, it must be this Sunday because we would never buy cards 10 days early. But that was one of my massive, one of my many public massive fails. But today apparently is Father's Day. And so happy Father's Day. We're thankful for all of you. You know, if you live for just a little while in this fallen, sin-marred world, you will eventually find yourself desperate, weak, and desperate. And perhaps that's how you feel this morning. As you come in today, you feel within desperate. It might be because of a situation in your life, because of suffering or sickness. It might be circumstances that you are facing or someone near you. And we face the question, where do we turn when we're weak and desperate? And this morning in our passage, we'll see several weak and desperate people. We'll see a, a weak and desperate dad who seems to be at the end of his rope going for the very last resort. We'll see a woman who is weak and desperate, who faces disease, social isolation, and financial ruin. And we'll see where they turn in their desperation. And as we watch them, we'll see that there is hope available for us when we are weak and desperate. And if you find yourself weak and desperate today, it's our hope that you would feel comfort and the compassion of God today. That you would know that we're glad that you're here in this moment of desperation. And it's our prayer that through these moments, Christ himself, by the Spirit, would comfort you. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 9. Today we'll be in Matthew 9, beginning in verse 18. So you can find it in the Bibles near you on page 814. Page 814. I encourage you to open up a Bible app or a copy of the Bible just so you can see the text in front of you today. You can see exactly where I'm drawing these thoughts from. If you're newer to the Bible, when you open it up, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. So we're in chapter 9. The smaller numbers, the verse numbers, will begin in verse 18. I'll mention these verse numbers throughout our time. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one. At the back of the room, there's a table, there's a stack of Bibles there, a sign that says free Bibles. We would love for you to swing by, just grab one of those Bibles, take it with you today as our gift to you. So Matthew 9, beginning in verse 18. While he, Jesus, was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, 
take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all the district. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon has been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. This morning, as we look at our passage, we see this emphasis. Keep looking to Jesus in faith, big or small, for he is able to meet our greatest needs. Keep looking to faith in, keep looking to Jesus in faith, big or small, for he is able to meet our greatest needs. We'll look at our passage in two parts. First, looking to Jesus. Then second, responding to Jesus. So looking to Jesus and then responding to Jesus. So first, looking to Jesus. We see in verse 18, the text picks up where we were last week, where Jesus was talking to the disciples of John the Baptist and some others, and he's interrupted by a man. Now, this man is referred to in our text as a ruler. Clearly, this man was a person of significant importance in their community. It seems most likely by ruler, it means he was one of the rulers, one of the leaders of the local Jewish synagogue. The synagogue was the center of life and faith in the community. So to be a ruler of the synagogue was was a person of great influence, would have been well-known in the community. And this man comes and kneels before Jesus, humbling himself before him. Now, we've already seen in this chapter just last week how Jesus was increasingly being opposed by many of the Jewish religious leaders. The sort of uh, authorities were turning against Jesus. So for this man, who was a leader among the Jewish leaders, to come and seek out Jesus shows just how desperate this man must have been. It seems likely that this man has tried everything else that he could for his sick, dying, and now dead daughter, but finally he's at his last resort. And the last possible resort was for him to go to Jesus. This father was utterly desperate. So desperate, he was willing to publicly humble himself before Jesus. He says that his daughter has just died, but he asked Jesus to come. And he says, if if you will come and just lay your hand on her, you can make her alive again. This man who's likely looked everywhere, nothing has worked, now is at his last resort. And he says, Jesus, will you help my daughter? And in his desperation, this man has 
some level of faith, some level of confidence that maybe, just maybe, Jesus could heal his daughter. Would Jesus turn away this desperate father? No. We see Jesus gladly goes with him on his way to his home. Friends, Jesus never turns away the desperate. He always welcomes them. He welcomes us. He welcomes you when you find yourself weak and desperate. Jesus didn't scold the man for being slow. Jesus didn't say, why did you wait so long? You should have come sooner. No, he graciously goes with this desperate dad. As they're on their way to this home, there was a crowd around him. We have parallel accounts in Mark 5 and Luke 8 that fill out some of the details, but there's this crowd around Jesus. In the midst of this crowd, there's another desperate person, a desperate woman. We see in verse 20 that she had suffered a discharge of blood for 12 years. Many scholars think that the discharge of blood was from her womb. 12 long years of bleeding. She's tried everything. It has cost her everything. She's financially ruined. And because of this bleeding, according to Jewish law, she would have been considered unclean as long as she was bleeding. So she would have been considered unclean for 12 years. Now, being unclean in this case wasn't sinful. However, being unclean would have kept her from going to the temple. The unclean are not able to go to the temple courts, so she would have been unable to engage in temple worship for 12 long years. And according to the law, she shouldn't have even been in the crowd because of the chance that she might touch someone else and make them unclean as well. In her desperation, though, she was seeking Jesus. Notice that she isn't even trying to speak with Jesus. In fact, it appears she doesn't even want Jesus' attention. She's hoping Jesus won't even notice her. She thought that if she could just go up unnoticed and not even touch Jesus, but just the fringe of his garment, she believed that would be enough to heal. This desperate woman had a measure of faith believing Jesus could help her. Her faith is certainly immature. It seems there's even some level of superstition because she she thinks that touching his garment, that that's it, is what would heal her. But notice in the text, friends, that she receives more than she had hoped for and honestly, more than she had bargained for. Because notice in verse 22, Jesus turns in the midst of this crowd and speaks to her. Her idea of doing this secretly, sort of getting in and getting out without being noticed, is spoiled as Jesus turns and notice what Jesus says. He looks at this desperate, lonely woman. And he says, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you. Well, and she was healed. 
Jesus wanted to bring this woman who had been forced to live in the lonely shadows into the light. She would now be clean, no longer needing to live at a distance from others, no longer prohibited from gathering with the people of God. And Jesus wanted to communicate encouragement, love, compassion, intimacy to this woman who had likely known no love, nor care, no compassion for 12 long years. Rebecca McLaughlin in her recent new book called Jesus Through the Eyes of Women writes of this woman. Here's what she says. Jesus welcomes this woman who has bled for 12 straight years as a daughter filled with faith. He gives her peace. Strikingly, this woman is the only individual in all the Gospels whom Jesus calls daughter. The woman who dared not come to him directly but touched his clothes secretly is recognized by Jesus intimately. She's his daughter. Of course, she has the right to touch him. Instead of humiliating this woman, Jesus validates her. She's been excluded from the temple for 12 years and now she's welcomed by the one who is the temple where we meet with God. As we had noticed, this woman's faith was not mature and full yet. Mixed with a level of some superstition of only touching her garment and yet Jesus commends her faith. Her imperfect faith was enough because her imperfect faith was directed towards the perfect Savior, Jesus. Jesus then resumed the journey to the house of the synagogue ruler. And when they arrive, it's, it's loud. There's a big commotion because the girl has already died. And so there were hired mourners was a part of the custom. So there have been people paid to weep loudly. There were people playing the flute as well as the members of the family who would have been grieving as well. So Jesus arrives, but then he sends them away out of the house, and he says to them, go away, for the girl is not dead, but she's sleeping. And the people there laughed at Jesus, because everyone knew the girl sadly was dead. But here Jesus is saying, well, she's only asleep. But nevertheless, the crowd was removed. Jesus goes into the room and he goes into the girl's room. Jesus takes her by the hand and she arose. The crowd was actually correct. The Jesus suggestion that the girl was only asleep was laughable. Everyone knew she was dead. To suggest that she was only asleep was laughable unless... The one speaking has power over death. And Jesus does. For Jesus, what we call death is nothing more than sleep. Author D.A. Carson says it this way, in his presence, before his authority, death itself must flee. Death is reduced to not much more than sleep. When Jesus confronts our last great enemy, death itself, death is the loser. It is stripped of its power and reduced to sleep. Jesus has power over death. 
But even as we see the extraordinary power of Jesus, that he can speak and raise one from the dead, we also see his equally great compassion. He could have simply said the word from outside the house or just standing near the girl that she is wake up from the dead. But notice, Jesus chose to take her hand, almost like a dad would wake up his daughter. Wake up. So that she wouldn't wake up to this crowd, this commotion. You can imagine you thought you were asleep, you wake up and there are people mourning your death. That would kind of freak you out in the best of times. Jesus wants none of that for the little girl. Instead, the compassion of Jesus touching her, gently waking her. So she wakes up not to this loud group mourning, but to the face and the feel of the touch of the very Son of God. We see another encounter, verses 27 to 31, as two men who were blind followed Jesus. And as they followed, they said, Have mercy on us, Son of David. As they entered the house, the blind men came to Jesus and asked them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they responded simply, yes, Lord. And we see in verse 29 that Jesus touches their eyes and, we, and he says to them, according to your faith, be it done to you. And they were able to see. In the Old Testament, we see no miracles of a blind person given sight. And in the New Testament, after the Gospels, no miracles of the blind person given sight. But interestingly, during Jesus' earthly ministry, there are more miracles of him giving sight than any other category of healings that he does. Why? Because in the Old Testament, we see this giving of sight is something that God does. For instance, Psalm 146, 7 and 8, the Lord sets the prisoners free, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. And this giving of sight to the blind is also something that the Messiah himself would do. So Isaiah 42, 7 says the Messiah comes to open the eyes that are blind. So by Jesus coming and actually regularly giving sight to the blind, Jesus is displaying his power, but also his credentials that this is God himself, the Messiah has broken into the world by this regular giving of sight. These blind men had been desperate. Apparently a lifetime of blindness, which would have caused a life of great difficulty and and most likely poverty in the world of that day. And in weakness and desperation, they had come to Jesus, trusting that he could heal. And he did. And their lives were transformed. Jesus cautions them, verse 30, see that no one knows about this. Jesus desires to slow the sort of messianic fervor, the misunderstandings that would arise. We admit, though, it's a a challenging instruction. Like, how do they not tell at a certain level because they once were blind and now they're not? And we see that whatever it is, they they certainly disobey Jesus because they go and tell and the news spreads of this healing that Jesus has brought. And then we see in verses 32 to 34 that a a man was brought to Jesus who was oppressed by a demon and he was unable to speak because of that. And again, Jesus heals. He casts out the demon and then the man is able to speak. 
And across our passage today, in each of these encounters, we see faith. Those who were healed had not earned this healing from Christ. They didn't deserve it. They hadn't cleaned themselves up such that they could merit healing. No, simply they had faith in Jesus. Simple faith in Jesus. We don't want to misunderstand faith, but it's very easy for us to do that. Jesus does not act in their lives or our lives because we have extraordinary faith. Jesus does not say that there's this meter and if you have strong enough faith, you're guaranteed for Jesus to intervene. That's never the way that Jesus works. It's not essential that we have great faith. It's not essential that we have strong faith. It's simply that we have faith in our great, strong Savior. And faith, we could say, is simply opening our weak hands to his glorious gift. And often when we're weak and desperate, it feels like it's almost impossible to even hold our hands steady. But even with weak, desperate, shaky hands, hands that are open with the most basic, simple trust is the faith that Jesus responds to. And really what we see in our text is Jesus is the one who is strong enough to heal and the one who brings compassion to those in need of healing. And what we see in our text is really not only faith, but Desperate faith. For in each situation, someone was desperate. The dad was desperate for his daughter. The woman was desperate in her isolation. The blind men were desperate for mercy. And the friends of the man who was mute were desperate as well. And the demon-oppressed man, it wasn't his faith, but the faith of his friends. And if you remember, we've already seen that sort of faith in Matthew 9 a few weeks ago. The friends who brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus to be healed. So it is here, the, the faith-driven acts of friends who bring one to Jesus. Each requires faith. Not perfect faith. Just desperate, often weak faith. D.A. Carson says it this way, Need and desperation are often the first steps in the pathway of faith. So friend, do you feel weak and desperate today? Does it seem like your faith, if it's even there, is only a flicker? And that's all that's necessary. Look to Christ today with whatever faith you have, however small, however weak. Look to Christ for compassion today. Now, based on our text, we, we might wonder, though, is this teaching that all who look to Jesus by faith will be healed? Is this saying that all who look to Jesus by faith will always receive what they're asking for? And the answer is no. We see these dramatic miracles in the Gospels because the very Son of God has come into the world. He's walking this earth. And where his kingdom was breaking in and where Jesus the king is, there is power and hope and healing and life. 
And at this moment of the gospel, as Jesus walks, the newness of his kingdom has come. And with that, the new life for the dead, new healing for the sick, new sight for those who can't see, and a new voice for the one who can't speak. So during Jesus' earthly ministry that we have recounted in the gospel, we see a glimpse of what his kingdom is like. His future glorious kingdom has broken in for a moment. So we see these flashes of healing and restoration that that point to prepare the way for the ultimate healing that is to come. Just a taste of it. Not even permanent then in the moment, but a glimpse of what all Christians wait for. The future reality when finally there will be no more suffering. There will be no more bleeding. There will be no more blindness, no more tears, and no more death. But for now, we stand and wait for that reality. For all those healed in this passage would one day see their bodies break down. The blind men late in life, their eyes would fade the woman would likely bleed again at the end. The little girl would eventually die, and they would all eventually die. Rebecca McLaughlin, again, writing about the bleeding woman, she says this, if we come to Jesus with our need, our desperation, and our shame, we can know he will receive us with tenderness too. He may not heal us here and now, He doesn't promise that. But when we come to him in need, he surely turns himself towards us and receives us just as he received this woman's touch and justified her actions. So we look to Jesus in faith and hope that he does have mercy and compassion for us now, that he does sometimes heal in this life. And that even when he doesn't heal in this life, he always sustains us with grace even as we await the greater future healing that God has in store for us. So we see looking to Jesus. But then second and more briefly, we see responding to Jesus. If we look across our passage, we see a variety of responses to Jesus. We see some that have faith in Jesus. We see the mourners who are outside the house who laughed at Jesus. We see the news of Jesus kind of spreading to the masses, to the crowds in verse 26 and verse 31. We see the crowds marveling at Jesus, verse 33. They say, never was anything like this seen in Israel. We also see the darker response of the Pharisees, verse 34. They say of Jesus, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. We see in our text and today that there are basically two responses to Jesus. One is to believe that Jesus truly is the promised one of God. That he's the savior who came to rescue sinners like us. The other option is to choose to believe that he isn't the one who he claimed to be. That he isn't the one the Bible is claiming that he is. In our text today, we see some who are at least, it seems, intrigued by Jesus, curious about him. Potentially on the road to believing in him. As many were amazed at the miracles that Jesus was doing. But friends, we we who are a distance from this historically, we should notice that they were amazed. Why were they amazed? It's because Jesus was doing things that were not common. He was doing things that they hadn't seen before. 
He was doing these because they didn't believe in miracles until he did these miracles. It's so easy for us to be cynical and to look back in history and to think, you know, those poor, simple people back then, that they all believed in miracles so easily, so, so they just bought into what might or might not have been miracles they easily believed. But friends, no, again and again, we see in the Gospels that, that people were amazed. News was spreading. This was a big deal. People said, we've never seen anything like this. And friends, these miracles that Jesus was doing in this passage could have been verified or debunked. Matthew writes this gospel account within the lifetime of these people. A person who wanted to could have sought out to find this person, say, did this man's daughter really die? Was she really raised? The bleeding woman, was she really healed? These blind men, that's verifiable. Either they can see or they can't. And friends, if these claims in the gospel of Matthew weren't true, this gospel would not have survived. There were lots of writings filled with things that weren't true because they weren't true. They didn't make it in history. But this gospel written in the very same area where these happened not only survived but spread beyond. Of course, there were some who refused Jesus. Many heard of and even saw the miracles of Jesus. They were amazed, but they didn't believe. Many people say today, maybe you think this. You say, well, if, if I saw the miracles, then I know I would believe. I mean, if I saw something like this happen, then I would believe in God. I would just encourage you, don't be so sure. So many in the crowd saw Jesus do so many miracles, and most ultimately didn't believe. Most chose to find another explanation in their own minds. Most rejected him. The Pharisees were even set more against Jesus so that they accused him of doing what he was doing by the power of demons. They were threatened by Jesus because who he said he was and what he said he was coming to do would impact every area of their lives. It would um, undermine their position, their power in life. And friends, the fact is, Jesus threatens every one of us in the sense that if, if he is who he claimed to be, if he did what the Bible says that he did, then he really is the son of God. And he calls all to, to trust in him. And the only way we can trust and follow him is if we relinquish our own power, our own kingdoms. And so Jesus threatens our kingdoms because he's the one true king. And trusting in Jesus by faith will transform your life, but it is costly to trust and follow Jesus. This lasting eternal transformation that he brings into life, though, is really the life that's worth living. The Bible tells us that all people are born blind, but by it, it means spiritually blind. So we have a set of physical eyes, but also the eyes of our heart is the language used in the New Testament. We're by nature born blind, and yet we need to see. What we need is for God to graciously open our eyes. Same way that he opened the eyes of those two blind men, that he would open the eyes of our hearts that we might see. 
So how do we see now? God opens our hearts. How do we see Jesus? The scriptures tell us when we hear the gospel. When we read God's word, it is through the word by the spirit that now we see. And God opens the eyes of our heart that we might trust in him by faith. Friend, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you would join us this morning. And we so want you to know this King Jesus. For Jesus is the son of David, as the blind men had said. He's the promised king. This king is the very son of God who came into this world that ultimately he might bleed for people like the woman who had bled. That he would die in the place of people like us and in the place of this little girl who'd been raised from the dead. Christ went to the cross in our place to die the death that we should have died because of our sin. So on the cross, he took our sin, our rebellion. He dies in our place. He's buried, raised triumphant, paying for our sins, providing for us his very righteousness credited to us so that we could be reconciled to God, made children of God, knowing God as Father. And this held out as a free gift to any and all who would receive it by faith. Who even with the weakest, the smallest of faith would say, Jesus, I trust in you. That's all the faith that's necessary to receive this glorious free gift. And friend, if you'd like to know more, we would love to tell you more about this. I'll be at the door following the service. If you came with a friend or a family member, if they're a Christian, they would love to tell you more. And for those of us who are Christians today, we live now in the already and not yet of Jesus' kingdom. The kingdom has broken in, and yet it's not yet what it will one day be. And so in this world, we still, we still face suffering. Disease, great pain and difficulty, a struggle against sin, the pain of death. And we, though we trust in Christ, we still find ourselves weak and desperate still. But our powerful, compassionate Savior promises to work in us, to sustain us in and through suffering and difficulty and disease and loss. And he will empower us for that by his grace and mercy. And we should also notice that for those who turn to Christ by faith, we will often face opposition just like Jesus did. We've already seen him tell us this in the Gospel of Matthew. And in our passage today, we see some laugh at Jesus. Others accuse Jesus of being in league with Satan. Friend, if you try to follow Jesus in the world, try to follow Jesus in greater Boston, you will face opposition. It may be in the workplace, but you face great, significant opposition. It might be in your neighborhood, students at school, on the university level, as well as in elementary, middle school, and high school. Kids, we're so grateful for your desire to follow Jesus at a young age. But it's hard to face opposition. It's painful. But friend, kids, when you face it, know that Jesus is with you when you face opposition. 
That he is for you and the Spirit will sustain you. Even in the pain of a friend who turns against you because you follow Jesus. D.A. Carson writes, Jesus' opponents sometimes directly misrepresented his motives and maligned his miracles. For most of us, it's very hard to persevere with calm integrity when we are so thoroughly misunderstood, so systematically slandered. However, Jesus not only proved trustworthy in the face of scorn and slander, but also did so precisely because it was part of his mission to do so. As followers of Jesus, we cannot expect to be treated better than he was. It would be unreasonable to think otherwise if the world judges us narrow, bigoted, or mad. That is only to be expected. Part of our growing trustworthiness as Christians will be reflected in our ability to handle opposition, scorn, and slander in the same way that Jesus did. Friends, life is hard in this world. There is pain, difficulty, disease, suffering, and death. But we can live now with hope. Because our Savior welcomes us in our need, in our desperation. He hears, he cares. Friends, he's at work in your life. Even when circumstances seem to say otherwise. And a quick word, brothers, to those of you who are dads. It's not easy to be a dad. What can we take from this text for dads? I would say this, brothers. Let us seek to be strong enough to desperately go to Jesus. Strong enough to let our kids see that we are weak and desperate and we need Jesus, just like this dad did. But maybe contrary to this dad, maybe we not go as last resort, but as a first resort. So friend, live that out before your kids, not perfectly, but imperfectly. Desperate, weak for Jesus. For all of us today, friends, let us look to Jesus. He is infinite in love and power and compassion. And especially for us when we're desperate. So look to him with faith today. However little faith you have, look and keep looking to Jesus.